Hey guys, just before we jump into today's interview with Les Pollard, the president of Oakwood University, we just want to let you know this was one of our interviews that unfortunately we had to do twice. When you are recording for the first time and trying to do so many interviews in such a short amount of time, we recorded all of season one in a matter of three days. Uh, you can have some mistakes that come through. And so we had to do this twice. And the second time around, we had some cell phone issues on Les Pollard's end. So if you hear any skips, anything like that, don't worry. He either repeats the information or it's enough that you can uh, figure it out by context. But we just wanted to give you a heads up that, yes, we are aware of it. We apologize for it. But this interview is way too good for you to miss out on and, and for you to skip so please take a listen to this because you are going to absolutely love it. Thank you guys so much for listening to the lead podcast. Here is our conversation with Les Pollard and Roger Hernandez. Welcome to the lead podcast, helping you to get it, grow it and give it. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is the lead podcast. Our special guests. Uh, today is Dr. Leslie Pollard. He is the president of Oakwood University. Welcome, Dr. Pollard, to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hernandez. I'm honored to be here tonight and glad to share what, what, whatever I had learned. All right. We're going to talk and jump right into our topic. Uh, we're going to talk about worship and worship wars and uh, we have titled this podcast, uh, Worship from Wars to Wow. Uh, why? Wow. It, uh, why I, know, I know that this is a topic that is uh, close, near and dear to your heart. What is liturgy so important? Well, of course, you know, Raj, when we talk about liturgy, we're talking about the way we structure our worship of God in the public setting. That's usually what we're talking about. So we're talking about what comes after what, what, what are the dynamics, almost like a musical score. You know, you have notes, but, but there are bars and, and staffs and all the rest of that. So, so it's how we move through the public worship experience. And, and, and the, the technical name for that is liturgy, prayer, offering, um, music of meditation, Silence, which is something that's almost unheard of in the Western world today, but silence and then the exposition of the Word of God and the, the response of the audience or the worshiper. It's, it's how we move through those, and it's important because wherever people gather together to worship God, some structure has to facilitate their collective worship, and we call that liturgy. It can be formal, it can be informal, but there is always a backbone of structure giving some form to how collectively together we worship God. Now, um, when I grew up, I grew up in a church that was pretty uh, traditional in liturgy in as much as, you know, if, if somebody in the church, if, if the, in the church that I grew up, if I had, if I raised my hands, they would probably tell me, if I had a question, right? They would say, do you have... <laughs> um, I, and, and, and I grew up with the understanding that si silence equals reverence and that, and that, yeah. and, and that yeah. messages and liturgy and the worship expression um, was to be endured, not enjoyed, right? It, and it, if it feels yeah. Uh, yeah. Some, yeah. somewhat yeah. good, it's, it, it's not... And, and, and one, of the, one of the main 
uh, tenets of that um, type of liturgy and, and worship service was this. Uh, it should only appeal to the mind. It should be rational in mm. nature. You can't feel anything. Mm. If you feel something, it's probably not good. What, what would you, how would you respond to that? Well, I would say let's go to the Bible. I guess that's one place. If we're going to say the Bible is... But then I'd have to say that we could get some basic principles on this and basic responses on the Bible. I, I think, first of all, we, we've got a number of different things working here. I think we have a kind of one-dimensional view of the human person. And worship in Scripture is just the opposite. It is very holistic. All one has to do is to read the Psalms. In the Psalms, they clap hands unto the Lord. They do a number of different kinds of bodily expressions that give meaning to the whole person is being affected by the worship. Only worship with the mind, that rationality is the only way that God can be understood, perceived, and approached, um, denies experience, it denies, Roger, it denies the kinesthetic elements of worship, the affected domain, all of those things. And, and God made us whole persons, so when we worship God, we are to worship Him with mind, body, and spirit. And that means all of those different things. So even the persons who say it should be silent, they kneel, they're actually using the body an attitude of reverence, right? So, um, so even in those systems, there is a, even in those systems, there is also the use of the body in worship. And then what we are talking about in most cases are the, the range of expression, not so much whether or not one person is affected and touched not just through the mind, but also through the feelings, the heart, the soul, and everything else. Um, so so it, you've been associated with different styles of worship. You, 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 work, on the West Coast, you work on the West Coast. Uh, you, you work now at the Oakwood University. You've been in Caucasian churches. You've been in Spanish congregations. You've been um, uh, Koreans. You've been all over the world. I mean, I saw you in a in a airport in Amsterdam. <laughs> in Amsterdam, remember that? Yes, yeah, we bumped into each other that's, one night. That's right. Um, so, so what would you say um, the main differences between African American liturgy and worship expression in a Caucasian? Um, worship expression. What would you be? What would you say are the main differences? Not that one is better than okay, the other. Yeah. What, what would be the differences? Oh no, no, no. Okay, so having spoken in all of these types of congregations in more than fifty different countries. Okay, so what I would say is let let's let's define our categories. So by African American, <clears throat> we're going to talk about what usually comes to mind when people think of a lively kind of electric. African-American worship service. And then by Caucasian Anglo, I think what we're going to use as a, is the, the much less expressive, um, more staid, and less emotive uh, public expression we're going to talk about. Okay, so the first of all, there are a number of different assumptions that are at work. African-American worship starts from one basic assumption, and that is that worship is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. So worship, there is communication between the Christians 
And, and, and one writer even said it's trilogical. There's communication between God, the preacher, and the audience. And at any African-American worship, all three of those are in a united sometimes in that conversation and sometimes polyphonic, meaning many voices. On the other hand, if we go to the other end of the continuum and we think of the more staid conservative uh, Caucasian worship service, there is another set of assumptions at work. That assumption is that worship is rational and that the best way to approach God is through the mind and, and the restraint of the body. Now, underneath those, when I used to teach worship, I introduced my students, Roger, to this word. There is a, there is a, a somo, soma, soma, meaning body, the Greek word for body, soma, uh, somaphobia, phobia, fear. Mm -hmm. There is a body fearing element underneath worship services that say we need to keep the body under control. There's, there's probably platonic dualism, dualism. I don't want to get too technical, mm -hmm. but there's probably that at work. On the other hand, with the other kind of worship service, African-American, there's a much more kinesthetic and holistic, we call it a somophilic worship, uh, body loving, so that the body is not a thing to be feared. It is a tool to be used to worship God. So that's a big, big, big difference. Another difference in the worship services is the role of the preacher. The preacher in the African-American tradition is to speak as pastor, sometimes as prophet, sometimes as agitator, sometimes as instigator, sometimes as consoler, all of those things. Um, that role is, is historically shaped. Often the role in many Caucasian congregations is the word, the, the, the pastor is shepherd and comforter, shepherd and comforter. But, but, but so, so there's a difference in the way the ministers are, are, are approached as well and, and the way they're seen. So I think those are some of the two of the, the main differences. One, one is dialogical. The other has a place for the role of the preacher. And then, of course, the role of the congregation. The congregation are participants, not recipients, in African-American worship. Yes, they receive, but they also give in the worship. That's the, that's the dialogical piece of it. Whereas in the other tradition, um, worshipers come to church and they are receivers. And having preached in all of these kinds of congregations, what I used to say to my homiletic students was, was don't judge people don't decide that people are emotional or non-emotional. The difference is in the freedom of expression, the level of expressiveness, the permission to express that's present in a congregation. Because I have preached, I remember preaching in Canada one time at a camp meeting way up in the north. I mean, like the middle of nowhere. I was the only person of color in the whole place. And when I finished preaching, they, they listened and that kind of thing, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm missing these people. When I got back to the door, they were hugging me, and they were crying, and, but, but I could never have seen that. These were farmers up in northern Canada. These were farmers, but at the door, they were just so expressive and so thankful for the ministry, and I learned that day that you really can't judge a book by its cover. Everybody has emotions. That's what makes us human. What differs is the freedom, uh, the degree of expressiveness that's permitted in the culture. Now, what, one of the, the hot topics sometimes we, when we have conversations about worship uh, is the use of percussion, the use of drums. And I, yeah, I, yes. I have, I've had um, people and conversations with, with people. One, one uh, 
lady told my son who who plays percussion uh, that's the gift that god gave him that uh, drums um any percussion instruments in worship are uh, come from an african voodoo ritual uh, <laughs> oh my, my. yeah and and, oh my. and my 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 son came to me and and said oh you know dad am, am i am i playing something wrong and um so yeah. so how, how how would you respond what what kind of uh, uh i believe that most people uh, sometimes just repeat what somebody else has said. They haven't done the research for yeah, themselves. They, they do. They so do. can you drop some knowledge on us and, and help us understand uh, how to respond to when somebody says, uh, I, the reason I ask this question is when I go to a, a regional conference camp meeting, uh, there's, yes. dr there's drum, yes. drums there. When I go to a state conference, there's drums in the youth tent, yeah. right? But not in the main in the main state. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've seen yeah, that difference. Too. The majority of African American churches will use some type of percussion and clapping, and you know, uh, uh, keeping with the music. And and uh, Caucasian churches will not. Spanish churches will use it in their tracks as long as you don't see it. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah you can. You, 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 yeah, you can. You can. You can hear. You can hear it. You just can't see it. Uh, so, so, yeah. so uh, help help us with that with that question. Well, okay. So, first of all, there are not a lot of ways to ex to respond to that. The first one is, okay. So, historically, the the notion of the drum being a part of an African voodoo worship, um, we we have archaeological digs in which drums have been found six thousand years ago in Mesopotamian cultures. So. This idea that somehow it originates in Africa and is, was used for voodoo and all the rest of that is, is, is it's not informed by, by history or archaeology. But the second thing that's working here, I think, Raj, that's far more subtle, is the psychological principle of association. Mm -hmm. So that when I see something, I associate it with something, and that association is actually what gives it meaning. So if, in fact, I, my associations say a drum was used in an African voodoo ritual or they use drums in rock bands or, and, and you can go on and on and on, um, then to the extent that I associate it with something evil, it becomes evil for me, evil in my conscience. But the reality is if, if, if the use of an instrument is what makes it fit or unfit for worship, then pianos are played in many places that have nothing to do with, with, with sacred worship. Um, so are organs, so are harps, so, uh, and you can go on and on and on, clarinets, and so, uh, so many instruments are used. I mean, what greater jazz instrument is there outside of a clarinet? I mean, it's, 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 it's famous for its use in jazz ensembles, the clarinet, famous for it. Mm. But that doesn't mean we can't use it in worship, because the instrument is not evil. It's not the instrument. It's the use of the instrument and the motivation of the of the instrumentalist that we must speak to. So in African-American worship, yes, of course, people use drums, guitars, and a whole bunch of other things, a whole bunch of other kinds of instruments. But it's how it's played. It's the balance in which it's played. And I often say to my other friends outside the African-American community, and believe it or not, it may not look like it to the outsider, but if we think it's too much, we dial, we dial the musicians back mm -hmm. all the time. It may not look like it to the outsider, but we actually do. So 
so the, the, the idea that a, that a particular instrument is banned because of its previous association would mean that we could not use any instruments in worship because they all can be connected to bad associations. And the reality is we'd have to be like our brothers and sisters from the Church of Christ who say we read of no musical instruments in the New Testament, therefore we don't have any in our churches. Mm. And only instrument we use is the voice to praise God. So unless we're willing to go to that extreme, in my judgment, my opinion, to that extent, in my opinion, then then we have to say everybody has a set of associations, and associations are grounded in personal preferences, and worship was not designed for personal preference. We have to worship God in a way that gives collective witness to our organized hallelujah. Now, do, do you sense that, um, and, I, you know, Anna, Answer honestly, do you sense that sometimes African-American worship in our Adventist context is more tolerated, that it is affirmed? It's like, well, that's that's them. I do, I do. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do, I do, I do, I do. I do, and I think some people, if they could make it go away, they would. I think they would. I think I think the people who say we shouldn't, I, I think there are people in our Adventist community who have this, this, this notion, and I don't, you know, I love everybody, but they have this notion that culture does not play any role in worship or anything else. Now, now it's it's very it's very unbiblical to believe that because culture is the modality through which God through which God communicates with us, and and because He doesn't have another, people say sometimes, well, well, if I if I look at it through human eyes, well, do you have another set that that we didn't know about or anything like that? Uh, is there another way to look at it beyond through our human eyes? And when people say, well, I don't believe culture has any place in religion or worship, we culture, culture, and they're anti-culture. Well, I say, okay. I used to have some students. I'd say, okay, I, I, okay, I understand. So preach me a sermon in the culture of heaven. Go ahead. Let, let me hear you preach a sermon that you believe is in the culture of heaven. Well, Doc, you know nobody can do that at I said, okay, so the fact that you can't do it says that the culture we're working with are the ones that we are born into and the ones that we adopt. And what the Bible does, it doesn't give a a carte blanche blank check to culture. It proves it. It refines it. There's some elements in African-American culture that we can't practice. And then there are other things in African-American culture that we embrace. And that's true for all of the global cultures. Mm. The problem we have... Um, Raj, in the com- in the cultural conversation, and I love all the missionaries, but it's the role of the British missionaries from the 1700s and forward who unwittingly, in transmitting the gospel, overlaid the gospel with Western Euro-Caucasian norms, and and those things in the minds of the host peoples became synonymous with what it means to be a Christian. And so I'm sitting in Nigeria one day, and it's it's got to be 99 degrees in that church. Marcy. I'm sweating like, you know, <laughs> and and here comes the choir master, and he's got on the choir master. See, check out the language, choir mm-hmm. master. So mm-hmm. there's something there, mm-hmm. but he's got on a great. I'll never forget it. A great tuxedo with tails and a bow tie and a shirt, and he's leading the choir that day. And I'm thinking that poor man is going to faint. Because he is he is dressed to the nines in, in a tail and in, in a tux with tails as he's leading the choir, and, and and that's what happens. See, that's that's what happens. So so the 
it's only recently that younger people, millennials and others, have started embracing their cultural traditions and saying, no, I don't have to dress in a tuxedo to come into church and to lead the choir. What, what's wrong with my African traditional garments? What's wrong with those? Who said that those are not fit for worship and those kinds of things? See? So, so that's what we've got here. So, so yes, it's some, there are many times in which it's tolerated. But the other thing about African-American worship, just like African-American culture, it kind of influences liturgical music and all the other things. So over time, we begin to see it reflected across a number of different different communities and cultural groups. And, and, and I, I don't know why that is, maybe because people begin to see it as cool. You know, maybe that's what, that's what it means to be cool. If African-American music is any instru- has any instructional value here, Raj, that's one of the things. The music that people deplored that came from African-Americans, at some point, it got to be cool. And, and everybody kind of adopted it. So I, I don't know what that means for worship, but that's certainly true in popular music because we see it every day. Now, you, you work uh, with, in, around uh, millennials and uh, Z, Z <laughs> yes, generated, yes, you know, to, uh, 2,000 uh, a, a, a of them. And I, I just wanted to get your perspective on what do you see their attitudes towards worship, corporate worship, church attendance, church music? Um, what what, what what are they saying to you? What is changing? What is staying the same? Um, what what do what what do they love? What do they not really appreciate? Oh, give yeah. give me some other perspectives. Okay, so I have the joy of working with and for millennials. I mean, and it's a wonderful. And of course, I'm the father of two millennials. You know, so. Yes. It, it, what I hear in, in terms of worship, what, what I hear on campus, and we do a study every other year. We've done it every year, 2011, 13, 15, and 17, called Life Core, based on that Bible verse, out of the heart are the issues of life. And it's a major, comprehensive, descriptive study of the, of the commitments of millennials, uh, and we do it every, every other year. Uh, we've learned a lot of things. Number one, authenticity. Is, uh, is, is indispensable to them. That is a non-negotiable value in worship. They want to know and believe and feel that what's happening is authentic. The second value that they have is that it, on the campus especially, we notice that on Friday evenings, we have a service called AYM, which is effectively a young adult worship service for us, by us, you know, that kind of worship service. And it gets anywhere from 15 to 1,700 students every Friday evening. It's amazing to be there and to listen to the music. So there's also that sense of, of, of young people serving and ministering to other young people, which is highly valued. And I would say to any pastor who's, who's running a church with millennials, you, got, you really do have to get them involved. You really do. Um, and you have to get them involved liturgically. We started this conversation with liturgy. Because all the research says they have a natural impulse to serve anyway. They want to be of service. Mm -hmm. I was just talking with our assistant chaplain this morning about a mission trip in which the young people went down to, uh, to I think it was Miami, and they were doing home, they were building houses with Habitat for Humanity and doing urban gardening and cleaning up neighborhoods. They have that impulse to serve. So they want to serve, but you have to kind of coax them 
into the public roles of worship and getting involved with that. Th- those are some of the things we see, authenticity, service, um, a desire to, to be engaged, and even at the level of planning, we see that with millennials. Um, we see an impatience with, with, with formality. I'm not saying that all of that's good, but that's what we see, a kind of impatience with formality. We see a breadth of awareness with music that, that their parents don't have. I often tease the, the people whose ch- children and grandchildren now I'm, I'm working for. I noticed something about millennials, Raj. They know all the music of my generation, mm-hmm. but my generation doesn't know all their music. Mm-hmm. And that's because they have instant access to every generation's music, their great-great-grandmother or great-great-grandfather who says, I liked Frank Sinatra when I was growing up. And then they'll go on and they'll Google Frank Sinatra and hear songs from him. Mm-hmm. Well, that-, that gives them a familiarity with a whole historical range of music, but it's the older people who don't know the music that, that is of, their, of, of the young people of the millennials generation. So they're way more fluent than we are in terms of music, and therefore they're more eclectic in their musical tastes. Mm-hmm. And and their friends uh, are also more multicultural. They have friends that have different... They are. Mm-hmm. They are. Uh, they are. Uh, so um, talk to me now about the the connection and the importance um, of worship that is God-centered, that is, that is intentional, and evangelism and mission. What, what's the connection that you've seen in your studies and Um, that, that, that a, good, a good worship service and a good planned out worship service that is intentional will reach a mind who's far from God, will reach a heart that is disconnected, oh boy. disconnected yeah. talking, from God. Yeah. You're talking about context, contextualization and, and, and a number of other different principles here. One of the things I learned as I was studying for this and doing my doctorate at, at a school on the West Coast is that contextualization is indispensable. And probably the greatest authorization for contextualization is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that his becoming a human being with all of the, all of the, the burdens of humanity, growing fatigued and thirsty and hungry and all of those other kinds of passions and impulses, uh, it's saying to become a king, he, he became a servant. Um, So the, the necessity, when people say, do, should we contextualize or not, I, I just say, well, look at the incarnation, and let's answer that question from that. So that, that's one. The second is the, the, the principle of incarnation. So we're trying to figure out how to reach people in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a liturgical idiom that speaks to them, that, that, that meets them where they are. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about contextualization. Our liturgy, the way we plan it, it's a, it speaks. It's a language. It's a cultural language. It's a lived language. It's a worship language. And that, that takes us there. Um, the other piece that I think about worship and its role in so many evangelism and growth is I always think of the Isaiah story. In Isaiah chapter, Isaiah died. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, and it's a wonderful vision in Isaiah 6, and you know, we know all the, de- I think we know all the details of the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim, but, but the piece that, that, that seems to speak to the worship part 
is that after he gets a vision of who God, the cultural context, you know, king, et cetera, et cetera, temple, worship, he gets a vision of God. Then he sees himself more clearly. And I think one of the purposes of worship is to enable us not only to see God, but to also see ourselves so that we approach others with, with an appropriate humility, knowing that I'm, I'm, far, I'm as far away from God as that person that I think is lost, and I, and I just want to be an agent. If I can help them know God better, I want to do that. So after the angel cleanses his lips when he says, woe is me, I am undone, then he hears a voice from heaven saying, now, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Lord, here am I, send me. It seems to me that the real connection between liturgy and evangelism is that notion of being sent on behalf of others. And it happens mm -hmm. through worship. And, and I like to say that, that the service begins when the service ends. So when these service ends, and that's what you see in Isaiah. And now he says, who am I? Go and send me. And then he tells him, go into the waste places and going down to the torn down cities and tell the people. So that's, that evangelism has to be grounded in that continuum of worship. And when we see ourselves, we have compassion on others. We volunteer. We're willing to be used by God, and God can use us to go out and to make a difference in the world. All right. Well, we, we've uh, reached the end of our time together. We are so thankful that you dedicated this time uh, to share with us uh, some knowledge about liturgy from somebody who actually studied. A lot of musical experts in the church never um, studied And that's, I'm not no, saying, I'm not saying, I, I, I'm not saying you cannot have an opinion, no. right? Everybody can have an opinion, but right, I, right. we all do. Yeah, we all do. Uh, but, we but, all do. but I, I really appreciate uh, listening from people who've actually uh, studied the, the topic and, and especially, yeah. especially this, yeah. la this last one, when we talked about the connection between evangelism and, and worship and liturgy, we really thank you. And we pray uh, success. We're going to put the, um, website the url for for the uh, oakwood university um there might be some people that are listening they're thinking about where to send their kids so thank you very much dr Paulo, for being with us may god bless you and we'll uh talk again okay thank you bye-bye i hope this was as good for you as it was for me i remember when roger and i were sitting there listening to dr pollard speak We both had several moments where we looked at each other and just our minds had been blown by the things he was sharing, things we had never even really considered before. And we hope the same happened for you. If you want to subscribe to The Lead Podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcatching app you might use. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please, please, please leave a review. It really helps us out. And we're always doing giveaways and cool things for those who do leave reviews. If you want to give us comments, questions, or feedback for the show, you can email us, leadsupodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Ryan180Becker, and Roger is at LeadSU. So thank you guys so much for listening and, and being a part of this leadership journey with us. We'll see you next time.